For KBOO News In-Depth, I'm Althea Billings. We'd like to meet a friend of ours who goes by the name of Killer Joe. Picture a so-called hippie or hip cat standing on a corner in a neatly pressed, double-breasted, form-fitting pinstripe suit, a pair of pointed-toed shoes with bold white stitches around the soles, a black shirt, long white tie, a black pencil mustache, and, of course, a very wide-brimmed black felt hat. Killer Joe always has a pocket full of loot, but only the kind that jingles. You see, he likes to play the horses. He is most certainly a ladies' man. As a matter of fact, he is always willing to accept cash contributions from them for any cause, namely his own. The most important thing about Killer Joe that you have to know is that he's very much against manual labor. Killer Joe. <laughs> This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. We invite you to participate in our brand new public affairs program, Once Upon a Time. Share with us your memories and touchstone events of your life, of your journey. Join us first and third Friday of the month from 11 to noon here on KBU 90.7 FM and available online at kibu.fm. Consuelo is my name and I will be glad to hear from you and reminisce about your journey. Once upon a time, live in the air room here at KBU 90.7 FM. Share with us your memories, experience and journey of your life. First and third Friday of the month, from 11 to noon here at KBU 90.7 FM. Tune in to KBU on Saturday, February 17th from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. for a special live remote broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream. Keep Alive the Dream is an annual celebration of the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This year's event includes guest speakers and musical performances from the MLK All-Star Band, Eli Hardy, and more. Again, that's a special live broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream, Saturday, February 17th, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., here on your community radio station, KBOO, Portland. Hi, I'm Cory Doctorow, and you're listening to KBU Portland. There's something missing, and I'm licking. I got something to say. Try 
Good evening. You're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. We're talking with Ricky Wilchens, uh, the author of When Texas Came for Our Teens. Uh, Ricky, welcome to Transpositive. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. So you wrote a book that's just been released. Um, uh, it just came out recently. When Texas Came for Our Teens, and I definitely want to get into uh, what your book is about and ask you all kinds of questions about it. Um, but before I do, first I would love to just ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> well, I'm a legend in my own mind. <laughs> um, I... Um, not sure what else what to say i mean i've written a bunch of books on trans politics and queer theory um i helped start transsexual menace and the first national trans organization um gender pack and um have been writing books off and on for the last 25 years it's not, actually this is the first um kind of political book i've ever done so it'll be interesting to see how it's received what are some of the other books that you've written, Ricky? Uh, queer Theory, Gender Theory, and Instant Primer is used a lot in college courses. My first book um, was Read My Lips, Sexual Subversion and the End of Gender, which came out actually in 96, I think, when the only other books out there that were really out, you know, besides medical texts and so forth, was uh, Stonebush Blues from Leslie Feinberg and Kate Bornstein's Gender Outlaw. So that was early days. Um, we put out an anthology called Gender Queer Voices from Beyond the Sexual Binary. Um, it's a collection of my writings because I have a, a medium blog and I've been writing for years for The Advocate. And we collected a bunch of those and uh, put them out in a book called Burn the Binary. Um, I can go on, but that's probably a good place to stop. Sure. Yeah, I think I remember reading your book. What Did you put that out in 96, that first one you mentioned? Yeah, Read My Lips when I was young and angry. <laughs> yeah, I remember that book. Yeah, I remember that really well. Yeah, because I remember I read Gender Outlaw about the same time as that. Wow. Yeah. I should mention, this is actually kind of two books. Um, I'm not really promoting the second one very much, but um, the, the, the book we're talking about today actually started with a series of interviews I conducted. I was kind of astonished at the idea that, you know, loving parents were having to leave their homes and states um, simply because they wanted to care for their transgender kids and give them um, recommended um, medical care. And so I started interviewing parents from Texas and also there are a few from Georgia and Idaho and so forth. And that became um, the book When Loving Your Kids is a Crime, uh, Parents Affirming Parents of Transgender Kids Speak Out. And then I just, in doing that, I just got so wrapped up in the politics of it that I just felt, you know, there's a really important story here that needs to be said. And I know there have been a lot of newspaper articles about it, but I hadn't seen anyone who really dug into it and given it a book length treatment. And I really felt that, I mean, this is such an important seminal event in the history of transgender people and transgender rights that it really deserved a book treatment. So I just started, you know, really getting into the weeds and, and just reading everything and collating information. That's where the second book came. So it's really a book and a companion book. And the second, the, the when Texas came for our kids is really just first person interviews. There's no me in it. It's just them. 
which I discovered, by the way, is a great way to write books. You just interview people and then you get credit for it and they do all the work. <laughs> yeah, they do all the suffering, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Well, along, with, along with us, we suffer along with them. It's true. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your first book then. Um, so uh, not your first book, first book, but the one we're talking about today, When mm -hmm. Texas Came for Our Teens. Um, what uh, can you tell us first of all kind of what uh what got you started on this idea of writing this book i mean uh, how how did you how did you conceptualize this idea you know i just started building a you know i'd already interviewed all these parents and i had a pretty good sense of what was going on where and um there's a wonderful researcher named aaron reed who has a blog called aaron in the morning and i follow her religiously and she's i love that blog that's the best yeah, it is yeah and um and I, I basically, I, I just, I spent months with an Excel spreadsheet, just building a timeline of what happened where and uh, bit by bit. And then um, the first ban was actually put into effect in Texas, but the first law banning care was put into effect, as I'm sure you know, in Arkansas, and then it was immediately stayed by the courts. So um, I really wanted to focus on Texas um, and Texas did it in a unique way. Instead of passing a law, they just basically redefined affirming care as a felony um, whenever it was um, given to a minor, um, which is kind of a unique, extra legal, extra constitutional way to do it. And um, I just started talking to people in Texas. It was very fortunate. There's a woman and her husband who are at the center of this. She's... Um, a pediatrician, actually, interestingly enough, one of her kids came out as trans, and um, she got in a huge fight with her father, with her, sorry, the child's father, well, actually, her husband, on how to raise the kid. He, turns out, was an adamant white Christian nationalist, and she wanted to raise the kids in an affirming way, and he wanted to force her to be a boy. And that literally became the flashpoint that went all the way up to the governor's mansion and ignited the new policy that was passed. And I had put in calls to her, and I, one Saturday morning I was sitting around, and I saw this call come in from Ann George Willis, MD, and I like jumped at the phone. I'm like, oh my God, you called me back. I was like, I was like all fangirling on her. It was kind of funny. And she kind of became my, my partner on this. I had a lot of calls with her and a lot of conversations to understand how this happened step by step and what the inside story was. I spoke with Lambda legal attorneys, uh, I spoke with some wonderful act activists there um, who had been fighting the bans, you know, going schlepping over to Austin year after year to fight the legislature, actually very successfully, and just talking to everybody I could. And eventually I had a timeline of pretty much all the major events and all the major actors, and then I just started writing. So when did, when did this start? I mean, uh, the, t Texas has a long history with trans community. I know that Transgender Menace, the organization that you talked about, has a history in Texas. I know that Texas is a place where a lot of acts of trans liberation have happened. I mean, it's not all bad in Texas, but I also know that Texas is a bad place for trans people too. It's, it's, it, it's both. So this most recent incarnation of hate against transgender people, to tell me the story. When did this begin? It really began in like 2015 and 2016. You know, in the early part of the decade, 
white Christian nationalists and their Republican allies suffered three devastating defeats in the Supreme Court uh, at the hands of, of, of at the end, toward, of, of Trump-appointed justices. And um, they lost on gay marriage, they lost on employment discrimination, and I forget the last one. And um, basically all the, all the air had gone out of the anti-gay culture war. And they literally were looking for new issues to jazz up the base and started pulling, uh, actually in Arkansas, on transgender girls in sports. And it got a surprising bump from their base. Um, they actually admitted in a New York Times article they were surprised and they weren't really looking for it. I mean, look, there are only about five transgender people in the whole country. <laughs> okay, that might be a little bit of a <laughs> an exaggeration, <laughs> but literally they were passing anti-sports laws in, in states where there was only one transgender person competing. And uh, that was not unusual. So, but they found it got the voters out and then they went from there and they pivoted. And just to keep the bandwagon going, they went after affirming care, which was also something about which people were not either unsure or hostile. And the whole thing has been, I mean, I'm sure there are a few people on the right who actually care about this, but basically it's entirely cynical. White Christian nationalists are really, really, and I, I know you just had a whole interview on this, but are really, really committed to imposing a biblical society on the US um, that will control your body and your sexuality and your gender, among other things. And it's very closely related with abortion and, um, and basically, this was just a way to jazz up the base and reinvigorate the culture wars. And it has worked better than anyone could have expected. It's a national phenomenon. I mean, Texas was the epicenter, but those laws have been introduced in something like, I don't know, 26 states, 30 states now. They haven't been passed in all those states, but they're being introduced all over. It's a national phenomenon. And Texas was just kind of my jumping off point because at a certain point, you just, you know, <laughs> I'd already written like 50,000 words and I thought, well, it's going to be, you know, 200,000 words if I try to cover all 50 states. So at a certain point I had to cut it off and it seemed like the first effective ban was a really good place. But this is a national phenomenon and it's entirely cynical. I don't think they, most of these people don't give a damn about transgender people. They could care less. Um, it is a great way to turn out the base though. Were you, I mean, as someone who's been around the block, at least, you know, a time or two, were you surprised to see what was happening in Texas beginning in 2015? I've been shocked at the entire thing. I mean, one of the things I, I say in the opening of the book is, and that really caught my eye was, you know, in, in 1995, when we found the gender pack, we couldn't buy mainstream news coverage. I mean, the only time we ever got anyone calling us was when, when some pit city passed a bathroom ordinance or some Fortune 500 decided to allow a transitioning transgender woman, and for some reason it was always women, to use the ladies' room. And then we'd get a call. And as far as anybody knew, we were a public bathroom coalition. I mean, <laughs> and I thought it's just really interesting. Here we are some 20 so years later, and trans is in the news every single day, multiple articles. Every, it's, people are obsessed with us. It's fascinating. We're less than 1% of the population. And like, how did that happen? What was the arc by which, you know, what are the forces that came together and planned that and funded it and piloted it and did, you know, and, and created message platforms and put it out? And I thought that was a really important question to look at. 
I mean, this this is it. I mean, we've been flying under the radar for a long time. And um, one of the points that I make in the book is that as part of, you know, um, the coalition of activists working really hard for almost 10 years to get, you know, people to add T to LGBT, to LGB, I thought that, you know, once we got under the umbrella, it would be, you know, happy days. And it was for a long time. I mean, adding T to LGBT gave us enormous leverage to accomplish things uh, that we never could have done if trans had stayed a standalone movement. But the other thing that it did, which I don't think in the, the law of unanticipated uh, results kicks in here, is that it put this huge target on our backs because we were now the weakest link uh, under the LGBT umbrella. And they figured that out and they came after us and we were not prepared. Nobody on the left was prepared for this. And uh, I, I hate what they're doing. I am livid about it. But at the same time, as an activist, I have to admire it. It was extremely effective. And uh, it caught us napping at a very weak point. And it has worked better than I'm sure they could have even imagined. And this is the final fight for transgender rights. And we will eventually win it, you know, just like we won, you know, gays in the military and gay marriage. You know, these things take 15 to 20 years to work their way through the, the bloodstream of the nation. But this is the final throwdown for transgender rights, and we are right in the middle of it. What do you? Um, what are some of the organizations that are behind these? Uh, there's over 600 pieces of legislation that have been introduced around the country. Is this a concerted just, effort? Just in this year. Just in this year. It's January. Yeah. Just in this year. <laughs> is is it a concerted effort? Are there organizations that are specifically? Oh my God! It's, I mean, completely coordinated. It's all the way across across the entire ecosystem. You know, the two big dogs in the fight are Alliance of Defending Freedom, which is probably the world's largest private law firm, uh, certainly the world's largest Christian nationalist law firm. And um, they have a budget that dwarfs HRCs. They've been leading this. And then um, American Principles Project, APP. Uh, but they also get help from the Eagle Forum, which is Phyllis Schlafly's old group. And Family Research Council, which of course is a you know LGBT baiting organization from way back. I mean, there's you know there's an entire network of these groups. They all work together, and this is the issue du jour, especially now that abortion uh, has moved to the background. Um, beating up on trans people, particularly transgender kids, um, is generating enormous money and turnout for them. And I expect it to get only worse as the election approaches. It was interesting to me that. Um, at one point last year, so I was winding down the book, both Trump and what DeSantis had just announced, it was considered a front runner. Um, of course, he's kind of disappeared by now, but um, DeSantis and Trump both released um, um, vile anti-trans statements on the same day. We had dueling press releases, about 1% of the population. Mm -hmm. And at one of his conferences, press, Trump even said, you guys didn't know anything about this five years ago, which is completely true. And nobody even cared. As Erin Reed points out, one of the I opened with one of her quotes. She said, uh, in 2019, transgender children 
could change their names and pronouns and genders, play school sports, use the appropriate bathroom, and get puberty blockers and then gender-affirming hormones in all 50 states without comment. And then three years later, it was all gone, at least in half the country. That's pretty amazing, mm-hmm. and pretty shocking, and pretty yeah. scary. Mm-hmm. So what are people doing in Texas to fight back? How, how has uh, the queer community and the transgender community in Texas fought back against this legislation? What are they doing to resist? Well, that wasn't really a focus of the book. <laughs> so okay. I'm not sure how much I can pontificate on that. I mean, Sorry. to be fair, the, the main actors here, the two biggest actors, it's now shifted to the courts. Not that the parents and the advocates haven't done an amazing job on the ground, they have. But the action now is mostly working its way through the courts. And it's mostly been the ACLU and Lambda Legal. And one thing I mentioned in the book, another arc, is that, you know, back in the gender pack days, I used to have arguments all the time with Lambda Legal who refused to take on any transgender cases because they were still proudly an LGB organization. And we would bring them cases and they just weren't interested. There was no transgender law uh, nonprofit back then. And um, they were kind of the only game in town and they, they wouldn't take them. And now I'm sure, you know, we are we are probably more than half of their docket. And I'm pretty sure we're probably almost half the docket of the ACLU. I mean, they have just done amazing work together. The ACLU in particular has filed in case after case that, um, you know, you can't just pick out a minority and discriminate against them because you don't like them. And that's what this amounts to. It is illegal discrimination. And uh, it'll be interesting. It's about to go to the Supreme Court and God only knows what they'll do. But um, it's generally considered illegal to pick out one minority group and um, legislate against them just because you don't like them. And that's what this amounts to. It's animus. The arguments they're making against gender affirming care for kids is ridiculous. Everything the kids get uh, is pretty much standard. I mean, I don't know, something like five to 10,000 mostly girls every year get puberty blockers. Um, it's not dangerous and or hormones, you know, and probably a million girls every year get hormones. They're called birth control pills. So none of the care that we're getting is particularly different. And as far as, you know, top surgery, not that many kids get top surgery before they're 18 who are trans. But I think last year they were like, last year on record, there was like 283, which is a rounding error on a rounding error. There are 5,000 girls who get breast surgery every year, mostly to get implants, some of them to get reduction. Nobody cares about it. It's only when you do it to change your gender that it becomes this big thing. So there's nothing weird or dangerous or experimental that the medical care these kids are getting. Conservatives just hate it, especially white Christian nationalists. And that should be against the law. So I guess we're about to find out. But right now it's, it's, it's arguments and briefs being filed in courts and going up and down the ladder of appeals and back down. So I guess we'll find out at some point. Most courts, I believe, except for the Fifth Circuit that does Texas, which is ridiculously conservative, most other courts have held that these laws are are unconstitutional and that you can't do this. So it's going to be appealed. I think it's already been appealed. It has already been appealed to the Supreme Court. So I guess we'll find out. So, you know, hold on to your seats on that one. Mm-hmm. By the way, so- a little parenthetically, one of the problems now, just I can interrupt for a second, sorry, <clears throat> probably... TMI, but you know, the Supreme Court did this whole undoing row by saying, well, it wasn't rooted in our traditions in the Constitution. Well, there are a lot of things that aren't rooted in the Constitution. 
birth control isn't you know, rooted in the Constitution. Interracial marriage isn't rooted in the Constitution. You know, gay marriage isn't. And certainly, you know, the right to have hormonal care for trans kids isn't. So now they're kind of hoist on their own petard. They have set up a standard that they set out to struck row, and it just doesn't fit with modern medicine. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they get around this. Because if they keep striking down stuff because it's not part of our national tradition and heritage going back, you know, 300 years, everything is up for grabs because very little <laughs> what our current life is was considered 300 years ago. They weren't thinking about cell phones and social media. So this will be interesting. Yeah. Sorry, that's just a sidebar. No, no, that, thank you. Um, the, so you you were just talking about the numbers, which which is really interesting because we're not really talking about that many kids in the first place. No, no, uh, we're really not. I have an article online called on my Medium blog called "Are the Are the Deck Is the Deck Stacked Against Transgender Kids?" And I basically say, look, we have thousands of kids getting these hormones when they're as young as seven years old. We have five thousand kids a year getting top surgery. We have something like 100,000 getting other affirming surgeries that, that are lifelong, that they could come to regret on their faces and noses and other parts of their body. You know, isn't it time that we press pause on gender affirming care for transgender teens? And then I answer my own question. I go, no, because none of those statistics have anything to do with transgender teens. Those are all cisgender kids getting exactly the same treatments. Just no one gives a damn when you do about it, do it to affirm your gender. It's only when you do it to change your gender that suddenly it's, you know, they're not old enough to know and this could affect them for their whole life and they'll regret it and all this crap they throw against the wall. It's called a gish gallop. You just keep throwing mud against the wall and hope that you know, some charge will stick. But this is all very common medicine that's being provided to cisgender kids by the thousands all over the country every year and nobody cares and nobody writes about it. Nobody passes laws against it. In fact, just one last bullet point. I think it was Arkansas, maybe in Tennessee, I think it was Arkansas, where there was a law to ban uh, affirming top surgery and a Democrat introduced a friendly resolution and said, I will gladly vote for this Republican measure if we ban all top surgery for all teens. You're saying they're not old enough to make these decisions and it could be a lifelong thing. They'll come to fine. Let's ban top surgery for girls who are cisgender who are now asking for top surgery as part of their graduation gift, which is very common, apparently. And the Republicans wouldn't go for it. <laughs> so it's pretty clear they're just trying to, to pick, they're just selecting us for an ass whooping, pardon my French. This is not about concern over lifelong decisions and regret and all that crap. It seems like one of the, um, <clears throat> one of the outcomes of these, these uh, acts of legislation is that they specifically target the providers of medical care. Could you mm -hmm. speak to that issue? Yes, it's insane. <laughs> but then again, it's also insane with abortion. I mean, you have this poor woman, was it just, was that also in Texas? I think it was, where, you know, she wanted to get an abortion because the fetus she was carrying was not viable and was probably dead and they were afraid of sepsis. So she had to sit for eight hours waiting in a, in a hospital for an ethics committee to make a decision. They sent her home without a decision. She came back the next day, waited half the day, finally gave up, went home, actually miscarried. I'm sorry, that's Ohio. That's Ohio, I'm sorry. And had a, had a, had a miscarriage and um, tried to dispose of the remains and they charged her with abuse of a corpse. 
I mean, this poor freaking woman, she's carrying a non-viable fetus that could you know, cause rupture and sepsis. Her life is at risk and they won't. And of course she's black and poor, which is the people they pick on most. It's just as insane with abortion as it is, you know, it's the same kind of thing. They're gonna basically try to take certain kinds of medical care that they don't like and, you know, put it through all these hurdles. And it'll be interesting to see if the courts allow it as constitutional. If it is, everything is completely up for grabs because you can't, you, know, you can't do this for just one group of people. I think, you know, contraception has to be next. Do you know of any medical providers so far that have been charged or even jailed for providing medical care to a transgender team? I don't. It's still just a big stick hanging out there. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it certainly has made it impossible for doctors to give abortions to women who need them. And just like it's made it impossible for doctors to provide care to children, and in some cases, adults. I mean, they have all these new laws down here. I live in Florida right now in South Beach, and they passed a new law that says, I mean, I've been on hormones since 76, so for almost half a century now, giving away my age. And all of a sudden, I'm supposed to go see a doctor and also an ethicist, and I'm supposed to sign a consent form, and every six months I have to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. I also have an article online, you know, about how trap laws are being applied to gender-affirming care, targeted uh, regulations against abortion, you know, that's abortion providers. They would pass these ridiculous laws saying that, you know, the doorway must be no more than four, four feet and six inches wide, and you must have admitting privileges at the local hospital, and there must be a doctor on duty, et cetera, et cetera, even though abortion is one of the safest procedures you can ever have. And the idea was just to regulate them out of existence. And they're now doing the same thing with affirming care. That's what Governor DeWine is starting to do in um, Ohio. He vetoed a law just a few days ago that looked like a victory. It was a law to ban affirming care. But now he's pushed out. I guess he got slapped on the wrist by his Republican colleagues. And now he's put out a new trap policy that would ban affirming care nationwide and demand that every person, adult or child, who wants affirming care must get a signed statement from a bioethicist. Well, there are only two bioethics centers in the state. They're both universal related, and they don't generally see thousands of people from the public who are, need to get need to get hormones or blockers. I mean, it's insane. It's it's intended to be insane. That's the whole point. So you know, we can do to turn people's private medical decisions and what we can't. And right now, they haven't indicted. I don't think any doctors have been indicted anywhere. But I'll tell you one thing that we are seeing, and Erin wrote about this on her blog, estimates are that between one and 200,000 transgender people have now emigrated out of their states to from red states to blue states all over the country. It is a huge out-migration. They're essentially internal political refugees within the U.S., and no one's written anything about it that I'm aware of except Erin, but it's huge. Hundreds of thousands of people and families who are moving out of red states um, because of these laws and policies. It's scary. And it's scary down here. I never know if my doctors, I don't know if my doctor even, I'm sure my doctor knows, but he's never mentioned it, neither have I. And every time I think if I mention it, then he knows and he has a fiduciary responsibility to cut me off under the new rules they passed, not a law, a rule again, like Texas. But then I also feel like, gee, does he actually know or not? And I have never mentioned it. And I'm always afraid they won't renew my prescription, which means I'm hopping on a plane to Colombia because I know I can get him for free in Cartagena or I'm sorry, freely without a prescription. But it's just crazy. No trans person in any red state knows what's going to happen tomorrow if they can keep taking medication or not. It's horrible. Horrible thing to do to people. 
can you tell me a little bit more about that? What what exactly is going on in Florida with with hormones and, and with medical care? DeSantis, DeSantis is beating transgender people like a gong because it was part of his effort to take down Trump and be more Trumpy than Trump. And it's one of the things he put in, you would think the guy was really good. I mean, it's a Harvard-trained MD, PhD named Joseph Lapido. I got Ladapo. I was getting his last name wrong. I was dyslexic on his last name. Anyway, he's highly trained. Unfortunately, he's also a vaccine denialist and has been putting out these horrible theories about vaccines, which make no sense. And um, long story short, they came up and, and Trump, Trump, sorry, DeSantis appointed the entire Florida Medical Board and they came up with this new regulation that trans people, including adults, must be evaluated by a shrink every six months must see a doctor, not an RN, and not a physician's assistant or a clinic. They must go see a medical doctor to be evaluated and have their prescription written out. And there's a whole bunch of other things. I can't even remember all the things you have to hop through. It's, it's something, it's, it's plainly created so it's impossible. You know, it's plainly created so it's impossible. It's a trap, a trap policy. And um, it's just being applied to affirming care instead of uh, abortion providers. And um, it hasn't been tested in the courts yet, but it also is supposedly the law of the land right now. So technically, you know, I, I just help. I just <laughs> shouldn't say this on the air, but I just had my prescriptions renewed and I was holding my breath because my doctor hadn't, you know, renewed the prescription. I thought, oh, it's finally hitting in the new year. And I kept nudging him and saying, hey, you know, I know it's, you haven't gotten to your, e well, it was just backed up, thank God. And I do have a doctor prescribing it, so, but I, I'm not seeing a shrink every six months to be reevaluated. And I haven't signed the required consent form, which you cannot find online, by the way, even though you're required to sign it because they haven't finalized it. What a coincidence. So that's what's happening in Florida. I'm only hopeful that once he loses the uh, primary in Iowa and realizes his hopes of presidency and his dreams are gone in dust, he will let up on us just a little bit because I don't really want to have to leave. I spent a long time getting here and South Beach is probably more liberal than Greenwich Village. But we are only a small isolated island in a sea of MAGA hats and Trumpies in Florida. So we'll see what happens. But it's bad. Florida is as bad as uh, Texas. And interestingly enough, DeSantis did just what the governor of um, Texas did. He couldn't get a bill through the legislature, which they couldn't in Texas, by the way, even in conservative Texas, they could not pass an anti-care bill. Well, they finally did. But for, for three tries, they couldn't get it through. And so they just did this end run around by changing the policy. And it's exactly what they did here. They couldn't get it through the legislature as Republican dominated as it is. So they just, well, we'll change the rules. It sounds like in Florida, anyways, this these trap laws aren't being enforced um so maybe they're just there for the propaganda value i don't know and i'm also grandmothered in i'm old enough that if i stop hormones i go through normal menopause and get hot flashes so they could be writing mine off as hrt as hormone replacement therapy i just don't know i mean i literally do not know there's also a law that was just our bill was just introduced that would force everyone to have uh, only uh, ID that conforms to their birth sex, which means I would no longer have a Florida driver's license that says female. They've already passed a law that says I can't use bathrooms down here. So technically, anytime I use the women's room, which you know at my age when I'm out is about every two or three seconds or in between every time mm -hmm. I take a breath or blink, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, someone could have me arrested. 
you know, it's just getting very hairy. I don't know if they would ever do that. I mean, South Beach is really liberal and I doubt the police would follow through, but it's just, it's gotten really, really difficult. And I'm really lucky. I'm white, I'm privileged, I'm educated, I'm empowered. It's a lot worse if you're up in the north part of the state, which is essentially lower Mississippi, lower Alabama, and you're black or previously incarcerated and you're poor or you're young. It's just awful. So I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I, I, like I said, I go to, I love visiting Cartagena and I can pick up almost all my prescriptions for about a quarter of the price and they don't require any doctors, anything. You just walk into a pharmacy and say, I need pills. I need an asthma inhaler, whatever it is, I'll give it to you. Anything except hard drugs. So I'm kind of lucky, but most people are not. And I know that. Yeah. In, um, in, in, in Florida and in some of these red states where these laws are being passed, are there communities that are, you know, maybe making res passing resolutions saying that they refuse to abide by these laws or they refuse to acknowledge them or there'll be zero enforcement of this legislation um yeah we've already had two two attorneys um u.s attorneys that desantis has suspended because they said they wouldn't enforce various laws against mm -hmm. abortion against trans kids whatever it was and so desantis suspended them no one's sure if that's legal either. If a governor can just suspend a U.S. attorney, I guess we're going to find out. But at the moment, they just suspended another one the other day. Yes, and, as, and you know, local law enforcement has a lot of leeway in terms of what they um, will um, uh, enforce. But it still is, is you know, it, it makes everything remarkably unfriendly. And for a lot of people, like I said, I'm lucky. It's really serious. One of the, actually, the woman I, who opens the um, um when loving your kid is a crime, um, she's white, but she was very poor and, um, you know, kind of living job to job on her own, had a divorce of her husband. And um, she kept getting, um, she kept getting investigated, not arrested, by the way, just investigated. She had a crazy half sister or sister-in-law, I'm sorry, who was a, a MAGA, you know, Christian nationalist. And she kept making up stuff. She said that, oh, She's dosing her transgender daughters with hormones against her will. And then she called in a complaint to DFPS that, you know, she was um, abusing her kid, that she was mentally unstable. So she kept closing one investigation after another. And finally, her Lambda legal lawyer, who was rep representing her pro bono, which is very nice, Lambda legal lawyer said, I don't like your new, your new guy has been assigned to you from DFPS. Sounds very, very aggressive. You need to get the hell out of Dodge right now. And she literally left everything she had loaded three kids, one transgender, one uh, Asperger's, uh, two cats and three lizards into her used van and drove nonstop in four days and four nights from Texas to uh, uh, Connecticut, which was then one of three sanctuary states, which refused that, you know, they will not enforce Texas laws there, even if they come after her. And um, they lived out of that van in the middle of winter in Connecticut, which as you know, can get quite cold. And she got the kids into a school and she would deliver packages for Walmart during the day. And then at night they would sleep, they'd go out the interstate and she'd find a rest stop where there was an attendant so they felt safe. And they'd sleep in the van. She'd let them watch Netflix on their iPhones until they fell asleep. And they all slept in that car for weeks and weeks and weeks. She'd make enough money every once in a while. She could afford a cheap motel so they could actually take a hot shower. 
and um, you know, get a good night's sleep, and then they go back to the van. And that's how they lived for months until someone finally found her some subsidized housing. So that's how bad it is. I don't even know how she did it. I have one teenage daughter. I can barely take care of her. She had three kids. They're living out of a van in the middle of the winter and two cats and three lizards. I don't know how she did it. Actually ruined her health, actually. She's on disability right now. Ruined her health, but she did it. That's how scary it is. Wow. Yeah. We're talking with uh, Ricky Wilchens. Uh, Ricky is the author of When Texas Came for Our Teens. Um, Also... Uh, an author of numerous books documenting transgender history and also um, uh, an advocate for the trans community going back almost 50 years. Uh, Ricky, when when was your first, uh, when did you first become engaged with the activist side of uh, transgender issues? Well, (laughs) I guess it was when I found the transsexual menace in 94 <clears throat> um you know that back then it was uh being transgender meant going at least you know, to those of us who were involved in these things meant going to conferences out on the interstate several times a year or some friendly hotel would let the cross-dressers you know dress in peace and eventually a few transsexuals would show up jameson green and phyllis fry and i forget who else And um, eventually there were kind of enough of us. um, And I thought this is, you know, all the workshops back things were like getting your spouse to accept you and loving yourself and that kind of stuff. And I was like, pardon me, but this is bullshit. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. It's important to love yourself and accept yourself. But um, this is a civil rights issue. And back then, the idea was, well, if you didn't pass, it was on you. It was a personal failing if people harassed you. And I kept saying, no, you know, <laughs> the right to express your gender is a civil rights issue. We need a movement around this. And um, someone had just, oh, it was Brandon Tina had just been killed. And a whole bunch of us um, decided to um, drive out and hold a memorial vigil in Falls City, Nebraska, where his murderers were being sentenced I remember Leslie and Kate both came to that and about 40 other people. And it was scary out there. And um, Tony Beretonetto, who was a, trans, was a transgender deputy sheriff at that point from um, Tampa, St. Pete, came with us to provide security and deal with law enforcement. And um, that's that for me was really when it started. And we did that for about two years. Whenever anybody would be murdered um, that we heard about, um, Nancy and Andrew from Boston, Tony and I would get in a plane and fly in someplace and hold a memorial vigil. And it's funny, people would not hold their own, but somehow if there were outsiders flying in for this event, local trans people would show up and we'd dress them all in menace t-shirts. So there was a visual, you know, 10 transgender people standing around a corner handing out, you know, leaflets is nothing, you know, holding up signs. 10 people in black t-shirts with blood dripping red rock, you know, Rocky Horror Show letters. That's a visual. And suddenly we get coverage, especially in the gay press. And so that did about two years. And finally, I just couldn't do it anymore. I thought, you know, you cannot stop a war from a mash tent. At some point, you have to go up on the front lines and change things. And that was the idea to found uh, Gender Pack. So we had a group of the major trans organizations. At that point, it was IFGE and 
Oh God, I forget all of them now. ISNA was in there, F2M Internationals was called, there was a whole bunch and started an organization which ended up being called Gender Pack or the Gender Public Advocacy Coalition. That was kind of where it started for me. And I did that for like 12 years. And then Mara started NCTE. And now NCTE is just huge. I mean, they have a staff of like 20 people or something like that. I don't know. It's so is the law center. It? The law center has an even bigger budget and yeah. probably needs it too. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing right, right. to me. When we we got the very first grant that was ever given by a funder to trans issues. It was Tim Gill. And I think they gave us $15,000 and we were over the moon, especially because I just quit my job working on Wall Street as a computer consultant, making considerably more. And we had a check for 15,000. Oh, this is big time, you know? Well, now that I'm, I estimate, I'm, I'm guessing, but my guess is the annual budgets of all the national trans organizations is probably between six and eight million bucks. But, mm -hmm. you know, back then it, there was literally nothing and all the national organizations were proudly LGB, not T. And um, every year for years, NCTE would wait until we announced our lobby day and then they would announce a lobbying event one week before just to step on our event. And this went on for years. I'm sure the people on Capitol Hill thought we were all nuts. Two different groups of trans people coming up and they're like, there aren't enough of us to, 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 to start a good forest fire, you know, a good fire in the forest, sorry. And it's like, they're competing with each other already. It's like amazing. But they did that for years. We would announce our lobby day and then they would announce theirs right before ours, just to step on ours. It was just so dumb and unnecessary. And that's kind of when I kind of stopped talking to them. Mm -hmm. Is Gender Pack still active? Oh, no. I sunsetted it about 12 years ago. And um, yeah, that's the idea behind Gender Pack was to do a national organization around gender identity and expression. And I think a lot of the trans community didn't want that. They wanted a specifically transgender organization. And I resisted that. And that kind of is what broke up the organization. I remember it's weird because it broke up over this wonderful, I guess now you would call her transmasculine lesbian who was being harassed at work and called, you know, masculine pronouns and being told, you know, you're too butch and, you know, basically being gender baited right and left. And I thought this is a clear case of gender identity discrimination. I mean, she is a butch identified lesbian and they were harassing her. And boy, you know, people in Washington and New York went ape over that. It's like, oh my God, we're wasting our, our precious resources. And we didn't no resources to raise. We were just putting out press releases and talking it up, but it was this huge issue because she wasn't transgender identified. It's like, well, you're either for the principle of gender identity rights or you aren't. And I never got the idea, and I still don't, frankly, of having a transgender-only organization. I've never believed in that. I think it's a principle that people unite around. You don't ask them, are you really transgender identified? The person is being discriminated against because their gender identity, they should be part of what you do. And um, 
that was apparently bridged too far, and that was my mistake. It's totally understandable. We're talking with Ricky Wilchens. Uh, Ricky's the author of When Texas Came for Our Teens. And we've kind of been going uh, wide in our conversation because, Ricky, you have so much history and have so much to tell. But I would like to get back to the book for the last uh, 10 minutes or so. Um, so how how are things turning out for kids in texas what's what's going on now uh for kids in texas the the families that you interviewed the people you talked with uh how did there's how did many of their stories go was there a common thread a lot of them have left and then the ones that, that have not like there's one of the parents there's actually one parent that i interviewed who's still there and she's actually very active but um you know, she said, I, I, I keep my head down. I never post anything that directly attacks the governor or any state representative. And um, um, I'm very careful to try to keep it constructive. I don't flame more anyone. And, you know, we try to stay out of the spotlight and just, you know, and, and always, you know, try to sound like we're, we're in a positive frame. And, you know, it, it, it's clear, and I asked her about this, it's, um, it's clear that they're using these laws to intimidate transgender activists who make them look bad in front of the legislature um, because the governor um, doesn't like that. And so, you know, um, when there's a lot of, you know, Greg Abbott is just a real nasty piece of work. And whenever, you know, people call him out personally, it's embarrassing. So, you know, apparently you can, you can do this as long as you, you know, avoid criticizing him or any of his peeps. As far as th their kids, like I said, a lot of parents with transgender kids have left the state. Um, what really worries me, because um, I've done some work in the state, is that there are there's a huge, enormous uh, child welfare system, and it is horrible, horrible. Um, um, kids, hundreds of kids die in that system every year from neglect, which the state is responsible for. And especially, um, as you could imagine, um, black and brown queer kids. Um, and um, they can't leave the state. They're in care. And I'm very worried about those kids who are being, um, if they're trans, are being forcibly detransitioned. De and that's just awful. And again, that's something else that no one's written about. Mm -hmm. The um what are the consequences right now for kids who are trans in Texas? I mean, are they, it, it's, are they still able to transition in any kind of a way within uh, the school system and within social life? I mean, is it, is it just a ban specifically against receiving biological care? I mean, there's other kinds of transition that people can use to express their authentic yeah. identity is are, are there laws against that as well yes they pass laws against using the right bathroom the right pronouns um name changes the whole thing um here in florida they've done the same thing um my daughter likes to go by a different name um she likes to go by a nickname has for some time um parents now have to sign a form giving them permission um so the fact that she was, instead of going as, you know, um, Dorothy wanted to go as Dot, 
you literally have to get a call from the school affirming this and they send you a form to sign to get the school permission to call her doc. It's just nuts. It's absolutely nuts. They're legislating against every facet of these kids. But, you know, I want to go back to the difference between, you know, just gender expression and, you know, fighting off what I call endogenous hormone poisoning, which is forcing kids' bodies to go through the wrong puberty. Um, those are the lifelong changes that you cannot really undo. And that's what's happening to too many Texas kids. Um, parent, kids who have affirming parents have it really, really hard. Um, most of them go outside the state to get their hormones. And there are now a number of uh, services online like Plume is one of them. Plume will prescribe to out almost all 50 states and send you hormones online, assuming you know about them. Um, but um, if you don't know about them, for some reason, you can't get them through the mail uh, or you can't drive across state lines to get your hormones, you're really screwed. And that's just the kids whose parents are affirming. Um, half or more of kids grow up in families who are not affirming. So what's happening to those kids? The entire debate has been about you know gender affirming care for kids and their parents. But what about the half to two thirds whose parents are not affirming, who either don't care or actively hostile? What happens to those kids? No one's talking about it. In fact, I'm working on a book now with a wonderful academic named Maura Priest who wrote one of the first articles, um, uh, I'm sorry, an academic journal article to ask, you know, do, do transgender kids have a right to their bodies? and a right to affirming care. And it actually has sparked a, a whole new mini field uh, within uh, bioethics. And there are now uh, probably three dozen papers on this. But I think it's a really, really important question. Um, it's, it's just, yeah, kids need to have the right care. Going, watching your body go through the wrong puberty for eight or 10 years is devastating. I know because I went through it and I'm still dealing with the effects. That was 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, Ricky, what does the future look like for kids in Texas? I don't know. You know, I really don't know. Um, we're going to have to see. The courts so far have been on their sides, but it's going to be appealed to the Supreme Court and at some point we'll get that ruling. The Supreme Court, I hate to say it because they're a bunch of crazies, but um, have been surprisingly receptive on LGBTQ issues uh, up to this point. So, you know, who knows what will happen there? It could strike down all these laws overnight, or they could just pass on it and, um, you know, send it back down to the other courts. I really don't know. It seems like the strategy of the Supreme Court on the whole has been to emphasize the um, very questionable states' rights argument that uh, any kind of uh, right which is not specifically enshrined within the Constitution or the amendments is reserved and held for the states, in which case we'll continue to get this patchwork of uh, various uh, standards of care, um, depending on which state you live in. Well, but that's just my prediction. No, it's certainly true, like I said, but it also, you can't, in theory, you can't just have, um, you, you can't, once you set up a standard, you have to hold that standard 
uh, across different kinds of cases and different populations. They can't have one kind of laws of constitutional interpretation, supposedly, uh, although they certainly did for Bush v. Gore, but you can't have one set of laws for transgender kids and one set of laws for women. If your interpretation works in one area, it has to work in another. Now in Bush v. Gore, they got around that by saying this only applies to this one case and cannot be used as, as a precedent to be cited in any other case. But it, it's it's shoddy it's it's shoddy it's shoddy judicial work, and I don't think mm-hmm. they can pull that rabbit out of that hat again. So, you know, now that they've set the standard to enable them to strike down abortion, I don't know how they're going to avoid having to apply. Like I said, modern medicine is not built on things that are deeply enshrined. Uh, in our constitution and our national way of life. Quite the contrary, medicine changes every year. So, you know, if, if they keep going down that road, it basically means the states can pass laws against any kind of medical care they don't like. I don't I don't think that's going to be, <laughs> I don't know how that works in a practical matter if we have a patchwork of all kinds of different procedures that are banned in certain states. And that seems to be where we're headed. And like, I want to say this again, this is not a political fight in the normal sense. This is a religious battle. This is a battle against a biblical interpretation of our society. Um, this is not Republicans against Democrats. This is white evangelical Christians against everybody else, unfortunately. <laughs> well, Ricky, it's been a real pleasure having you on Transpositive. Uh, where can people find your book? Um, you know, all the usual places, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, etc. Uh, and if there are any reviewers out there who want to write a um, review, you're welcome to um, write to transteensmatter at gmail.com and I'll send you a free copy to review. Otherwise, please buy it on Amazon. It's, I think the Kindle version is only $9.99, so very attractively priced. And don't forget about um, when loving your kid is a crime, um, affirming parents of transgender teens speak out. Those. Those parents are wonderful. I love every single one of them. Ricky, it's been a real pleasure having you on Transpositive. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Transgender people don't live here. I've never met anyone who's transgender. I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. But according to the HRC Foundation, there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States. We live in every community across this country. You might be surprised to hear that there are more transgender and non-binary people in the United States than there are. Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart locations combined. In fact, if you put us all together, there'd be more non-binary and transgender folks than the populations of DC, or Nebraska, or Maine, or Idaho, or West Virginia. As a matter of fact, 15 states have a lower population than the amount of trans folks in the U.S. So here are a few things to keep in mind. You don't always know when a person is trans. But we're your neighbors, your co-workers, your students, your customers, and even your friends and family. We exist in every culture, todas culturas, throughout human history. And while we're more visible than ever before, sometimes you just don't see us. So when you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills, know this, these bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. 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 
and we need your support. Hi, this is Emma. Um, I am a co-host of Transpositive, and I'm also the current president of the board of directors here at KBU. KBU, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. Your friends at KBU want to remind you that generosity has the same power. Join thousands of KBU supporters from all around the world, and let's rally together to build stronger communities. If you can, just go to kboo.fm slash give or text kboo to this number 44321. And thanks so much for your support of KBOO Community Radio. We're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K2H2BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. Tune in to KBOO throughout February, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. for Black History Future Month our special programming series in celebration of Black heritage. This series aims to celebrate all aspects of the Black lived experience, from contemporary, political, and social issues to understanding how history impacts our present. Again, that's Black History Future Month, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. throughout the month of February where you will hear interviews from black 